Ho ho, hello and welcome to our second fully scored Christmas special, also known as episode 24. We've got more festivities packed into our metaphorical pastry than a mince pie. The proclamation of Christmas is our featured work in this episode, and guiding us through an exploration of the piece, we have none other than the composer himself, Mr. Stephen Buller. But first of all, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our interviewee for this episode. He's known all around the world for delivering presents, his immaculate white beard, his signature red suit. Oh, I am sorry. Uh, oh, apparently we can't release that interview due to licensing issues with Coca-Cola. Hopefully we'll be able to resolve those issues and release the interview next year. Although I can tell you this little nugget. Apparently, Father Christmas's signature red suit was actually inspired by the International Staff Band's red festival tunics. Who would have thunk it? Fortunately, we've also recorded an interview with Anthony Thompson. Anthony is a soprano cornet player and deputy bandmaster at the Castleford Corps in the UK. As well as this, Anthony is an in-demand orchestral and commercial trumpet player. We'll hear a little bit more about that side of his life in this interview. It was a real pleasure speaking to Anthony, and I hope you enjoy listening to him too. Well, thank you ever so much, Anthony, for joining us today on Fully Scored. Are you keeping well? Um, I am keeping well, thank you, and it's my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. I'm looking forward to getting to know a little bit more about you and your life and your music over the coming interview. So, first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background and where you grew up. So, can you tell us where were the early days of Anthony Thompson lived out? Okay, right. Let me tell you this straight away. Before I was born, because this is a, a great story, I think, um, and one that that returns to me in in quieter moments. Before I was born, my mum was going through a spell of listening to a lot of Tchaikovsky, and she said that when when you know towards the end of a symphony or a great moment and the brass section came steaming in i would kick her and she would maybe have to turn it off but the key thing is i would kick her in time with the music now you can't always trust your mother and anyone who knows my mum you can make your own decisions but um i think that's fascinating and she says it was similar listening to the army band at castleford of which um, i'm a part and and have been a part presumably from before i was born i guess in that sense fantastic that's a great story and my next question was going to be uh, where did your musical beginning start but it sounds like from the womb uh, but i presume yeah. that your cornet or trumpet playing didn't also take place from the womb could you tell I was us born with a silver start? trumpet in my mouth no um <laughs> but i i just wanted to join the junior band you know like lots of uh, young boys, you look up to those boys who were slightly older and the slightly older boys were in the junior band. And so I wanted to be in the junior band. But I started on the corners at six and a half and um, I joined the junior band as soon as I could. In those days, you had to give your heart to Jesus to join the band. And um, I make no apology for saying that was the way around it was, although presumably the other way around would have been better. But what you need to do is you need to go to the mercy seat at the front of the hall. You need to kneel and pray and say, I accept Jesus. Right. Okay. 
when do I do it? It doesn't matter really, just in the meeting. Okay. And so that afternoon praise meeting, it, the band played the opening march and I went out straight away with my grandmother. And um, uh, even at that age of seven, seven and a half, something had shifted and I couldn't deny that, nor would I want to, even at that age. And it remains shifted. Fantastic. It's a great story there. And uh, must have been a cracking march to take you down to the Mercy Station. <laughs> I don't remember it. I might have got the details wrong, but that, that was a story that was told. But as we know, stories get better over the years, don't they? And, and details change. <laughs> Absolutely. So from those early days of picking up the cornet for the first time, who would you say were some key inspirations in your life to take you forward to progressing on the instrument and in your faith? Right. Well, um, first of all, my uncle Martin, Martin Colley, uh, who was giving me lessons and he was an example to follow. He liked a lot of the things that I liked and I enjoy going to watch cricket with him to this, to this day. The junior band leader throughout the entire time I was in the junior band was Campbell Freeman. Um, he is amongst the greats in my life, um, as was his father, Gordon. My uncle Brian is a, a great man and somebody I look up to greatly. And my father, who passed away recently, and uh, that's still quite sore, if I'm honest, and um, <laughs> I miss him a great deal. Um, a great man, a lovely great man. Well, thank you. And thank you for your openness there in that answer. So now to talk a little bit about your studies. I believe you went on to study at Hull University to study music. I did. Later at the Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. Can you tell That's us about right. that, that time? My mum and dad were keen for me to go to an old-fashioned kind of university rather than a polytechnic and to do an old-fashioned course that got me an honours degree. That's what they wanted. And I didn't really want to do that because I was thinking more modern and I wanted to see what Huddersfield would be like. But in the league table of music departments, it was something like Cambridge, Oxford, Bristol, Hull, York were the top five. And I thought, well, I'm not bright enough for Oxford or Cambridge. Um, I didn't fancy going to Bristol. Um, but York or Hull, I thought I could probably crack those. And um, I just got a really good feeling about Hull. I really liked it. But I wanted to go to Huddersfield so I could have lessons with David James. But then I figured out that I could go to Hull and do the degree that my mum and dad wanted me to do, but I could still have lessons with David James. So that's what I did. After that, I applied really late to do postgrad and I'd missed the boat really. The Guildhall said they were full, but I could do the jazz course, which I didn't think was a good idea for me. The Royal Academy said I'd missed the deadline. I'd missed all the deadlines, to be honest. The Royal Northern gave me a place and the Scottish gave me a place and I ended up going to, to Glasgow. I had the best year there. It was just magnificent. I absolutely loved being there. And just the things that I learned from being in that pool of players for that year was very good for me. Um, I had lessons with John Gracie, who was a principal trumpet of the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And he was a force of nature. And um, uh, yeah, I found him quite inspiring too. Now, let me tell you something else about that year. My Christianity had continued to develop and I was interested. 
I'd initially not done any senior soldier classes because I, I knew I wasn't in the right frame of mind for that. Um, not that I was rebellious, but I, I knew there was more to it. and I didn't want to just kind of lemming-like fall along the same way. I remember a friend of mine writing a testimony for somebody else as she became a senior soldier while she was out having a smoke. And I, I thought, I don't want to be going down that, that path. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it or not do it. And I kind of realized at 17, 18, that I was um, an all or nothing kind of a person. And then I had to choose, am I going to be a Christian? Do I love Jesus? Do I really, you know, because either it's all true or it's not at all true. It can't be in the middle. So I decided it was all true. Therefore, I needed to go to church. Salvation Army seems to suit me, but I'm not really sure what else is out there. And this conversation, I'm telling you quickly, lasted a few years but um i did take a year um in glasgow postgrad and i went through the yellow pages and i went to a different church every sunday honestly i went to some right old places <laughs> some very odd experiences some really good experiences um i remember sitting next to the celtic legendary goalkeeper paddy bonner at the um, catholic cathedral one week could i was a bit starstruck and I didn't understand all the Latin, but, I, you know, it was an experience. I quickly realised I needed a body of people to be part of. And so I went to um, Partick. Now, the officers at the, there at that time were Stuart and Marjorie Watson. And Marjorie wasn't there very often because she was very, very ill and in hospital. Um, but the teaching that Stuart gave was was massive to me and um, he remains a very close friend as does Marjorie I visit them often I speak to them often and when I've got questions they're people that I go to. Now I'm not sure I might have got my timeline a little bit muddled up here but did you around this time after you graduated uh, go on to work for the Salvation Army in Texas? I did I went there to join a good friend Philip Byrne on June the 4th 1996 I remember it very, very clearly. I remember getting off the plane at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and being absolutely wiped out by by the sudden heat, just like the vast heat on the runway was huge and um, very exciting to me. I like it hot. I spent two years there. I was the Metroplex music director, but to be honest, I was more like an ADMD, assistant director of music, and um, had a great time. Great time, loved it. I did it for two years. Um, and then I came back. While I was there, I um, I started having lessons with Jeff Kernow, who'd been in Empire Brass Quintet and then took the job as principal trumpet of Dallas Symphony Orchestra. And I'd had lessons with him, which went really badly. And then we had a big, big fallout where we were shouting at each other, which is not like me at all. Um, I don't suppose it's like him either. And in the middle of that fallout, we suddenly went, oh, and had a realization about each other. And after that, he said, right, what are you going to do? So I said, I'm going to trust you and uh, continue having lessons. And now that I've realized that and you've realized that, let's start again. And we did. We got on really well. <laughs> uh, my, my playing improved. But I got an itch. I got an itch, which was 
could I make it as a freelance professional trumpeter? I couldn't really do that in Dallas because of my visa being a religious workers visa. Um, and Jeff was kindly helping, uh, trying to help to get me to play with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. Um, the Dallas Chamber Orchestra had been in touch as well, saying, could I play with them? Um, and it didn't, it just wouldn't work out. So I realized I'd have to come home if I was going to pursue that goal. But you know how it is with itches. They just need scratching, don't they? So, so I came back to Castleford and uh, I started to find out if I could make it as a professional trumpeter. And I'm still finding out now. I came back in 1998 and yeah. Great. And that leads me really nicely onto my next question. I'd like to talk a little bit about your trumpet playing now. So in your career as an orchestral trumpet player, you've performed with many of the top UK orchestras, including the BBC Philharmonic, Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, CBSO, Halle, Royal Northern Symphonia, Britain Symphonia, uh, Royal Shakespeare Company, to name just a few. Can you tell us about some of these occasions and perhaps a particular highlight of, of performing with these orchestras that you've had? What I really like about life is variety. And so to be able to play with one group and then another group and then in a different setting and to come to a Salvation Army group and to play a tiny bit of jazz and to work with children, um, to work with SEND children as well. It's the full variety that I like. So to play in a Shakespeare, um, Julius Caesar is the one that springs to mind there. Um, and then the next day to play Haydn with the chamber orchestra and the next day to play Mahler with, with the Halle. It, that's the thing. That's the thing for me, the sheer variety. Um, things that stand out would be one week in particular. I played a duet with Sting at the Sage in Gateshead with the Royal Northern Symphonia. And the same week I played for the Pope at Hyde Park. And I thought, wow, the whole world has heard of one or other of those two gents. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a remarkable week, really. Fantastic. And now a bit more of a technical question, perhaps. But as a player, how do you adapt one day playing with a symphony orchestra, playing some Tchaikovsky, for example, to then go in the next day to playing in a more commercial setting? Are there any specific things that you do to adjust your playing to set in the different scenarios? That is a good technical question. Um, I don't use different equipment. It's the same instrument, the same mouthpiece. I suppose it's to do with listening, isn't it? I suppose it's to do with listening. Some of it's to do with vibrato, things like that, for example. One of my teachers, David James, got in touch with the bandmaster, Graham Woodhead, and said, please, could you give Ant a month off vibrato in the band? <laughs> and then he said, no vibrato whatsoever this week. And then he gave me a week of late kind of vibrato, like soul and funk and like commercial. And then he gave me a week of kind of Spanish and Mexican, slightly wider vibrato. And then he gave me a week of thick brass band and heavy Russian vibrato. So by the end of the month, uh, vibrato was something I turned on rather than played with naturally. And so it's uh, a little insight into the level of detail that he taught me with, but um, just by changing the shape of my mouth, you know, if I'm playing a lead trumpet part, my tongue's further forward at the bottom of my teeth. 
in I'm not it's no point in showing you because this is a podcast, isn't it? But <laughs> putting my tongue further forward near the bottom of my teeth if I'm playing lead trumpet. Things like that, just slight physical changes. Maybe slightly different compression in the lungs, but but mostly it's just ears. What's the sound that I'm trying to create? How do I create that sound? Excellent. Wise advice indeed. So another aspect of your work alongside ensemble playing is solo playing. Have you got a favourite work to perform or even a genre to perform as a soloist? I really enjoy playing Baroque music on the piccolo trumpet. I really enjoy that. Um, I like the the way that you can improvise. I like the way that Baroque music is always, not always, but nearly always based in some kind of dance. I like the way that Baroque music often seems to be going upwards. Bach's a, a good example of that. Not that there are Bach solo pieces I would play, particularly. I mean, Brandenburg too, of course, but all that kind of thing. It always tends to have upward direction in the trumpets, um, predominantly. Of course, it needs to come down again. It's like an umbrella, isn't it? But loads of Bach starts with trumpets going up, um, and I like that. And I like the idea that the music is perhaps a starting point. So you, it's not heavily edited usually. You can make your own edition as you go along, depending on how the organ sounds or the orchestra sounds or the room you're in. And I like that, collaborating with the uh, composer. Fantastic. Great. Thank you for that insight. Really interesting to hear. Um, now. I'm sure listening to this, we'll have many uh, brass players and lots of aspiring young brass players as well. So from an educator's point of view, is there any tips or, or tricks that you could uh, give to our listeners now that are hoping to make it one day as a, as a brass player? Well, first of all, the thing that springs to mind is that there aren't any shortcuts. You just do it and do it and do it and do it some more. And you don't even need to have to do loads of it, but you need to do it regularly. And for me, there's no replacement for daily practice. Going again to Mr. James, he, he would refer to my practice like a meal. You know, make sure you have your meat. I'm vegetarian, but still, you make sure you have your meat. Make sure you support that with, your, with good vegetables. But make sure you have a pudding. Something enjoyable, something that's not good for you, something that's just there to be enjoyed. Make sure you finish your practice with something nice. So that's important. So keep going, keep going and keep going. That's my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice comes from all the times that I've been asked to do kind of clinics or master classes or teacher consultation lesson, tutor a brass ensemble. It's always down to breathing, just always down to breathing. So if you're in your junior band or your senior band, breathe in time with the music. That could be a crotchet before you need to come in. It could be a minimum. It could be a full bar. It doesn't really matter. But breathe in time with the music and breathe calmly and silently. Because if it's not a silent breath, there's a tension. If there's a tension on the way in, there'll be a tension on the way out. And also breathe with your neighbour. You know, if, you, if you're in a section and the three or four of you can all breathe together, you'll, you'll play together with a more homogenous tone. 
and a more homogeneous volume usually as well. So I often breathe in minim, so that's how I tend to do it. But, you know, find your own way because you're not me. Okay. Wise, wise advice indeed. So come on to my last couple of questions of the more serious nature before we go on to our quirky quickfire uh, questions. <laughs> Which I'm dreading. Okay. Yeah, you're right to be nervous. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but maybe these are challenging questions as well. Do you consider making music both within and outside of the Salvation Army context to be fulfilling your calling as a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there are simple and complex answers to that question, but I don't really see the difference, if I'm honest. Because to me, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian at the, at the Salvation Army on a Sunday morning, but I'm also a Christian when I'm not at the Salvation Army. If I go to buy a loaf of bread, I'm a Christian. If I'm playing in the band, I'm a Christian. If I'm playing in an orchestra, I'm a Christian. My life is lived with, with Christ. What an amazing thing to be able to say. And so it doesn't matter where I am. Christ hasn't left me. Oh, he's with an orchestra now. Obviously, it's my time off. No, Christ's with me all the time. The job is to carry Christ with me wherever I go. Um, although we both know that he's really the one carrying me. And how do you go about that, showing your faith through your music making? Through my music making, you know, when I'm on the stand, the, the calmness of approach, perhaps, or the, the way I hold myself, maybe, maybe being teetotal helps um I, I know a lot of people would say it's a hindrance to be teetotal but i don't find that because people will quickly say why are you not drinking well there's a really straight answer to that i'm in the salvation army i took this vow and people always respect that without fail in my experience um but it's the other abstinences isn't it it's the not wanting to to laugh at, at jokes that you think are not worthy even if they're really funny <laughs> not wanting to uh, use language that isn't befitting even if it feels justified <laughs> just the the way you live your life isn't it it's a standout thing and it, it should leak it should leak out without you even noticing people notice that there's something about a christian person i think thankfully you don't need to be good at being a christian i don't think because I don't ever feel competent, like a competent Christian. I don't know what that is, really. But going back to all the people that I admired, they were people who were just trying. And it was what they were trying to do that, that I, that's where I saw the grace. Can you be like Jesus, Matthew? No. But you can try. And you've got examples along the way of people who've tried. And, you, you know, you can meet them. Well, thank you very much for that profound answer there. Certainly something to think about. So thank you for that. And um, as I say, now for something completely different, uh, we're going to go into the realm of quirky quickfire questions. As today is our Christmas episode, um, I've got a few Christmas cracker questions to ask you. That's a tongue twister, isn't it? It I'm is. Try that again. <laughs> Christmas cracker questions. Christmas cracker questions. That's the one. So, first question. 
What's your favourite part of a Christmas dinner? Uh, Yorkshire pudding. Excellent stuff. True Yorkshire. No hesitancy there. No, no. <laughs> uh, have you got a favourite carol? Okay, Joy to the World. I like a lot. I like a bit of handle, and uh, Joy to the World is uh, is a what the kids call a tune. Absolutely. Um, on the opposite end of the spectrum, have you got a least favourite carol? Um, I mean, the Salvation Army Band playing something maudlin uh, in a marketplace is brilliant, isn't it, in its own way? But uh, there are some, someone, I can't think of a good example, really something that just drags and gets slower and slower and slower, like a Christmas version of How Great Thou Art. <laughs> Especially after three hours of caroling, it's going to hurt. Though, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many times do you reckon you could play Sussex Carol on loop in one breath? Certainly twice, and probably two and a half. Excellent. It's probably something I've tried. <laughs> yeah. We'd encourage listeners at home to go and try it now as well. Yeah. Don't pass out. <laughs> um, what's the worst ever Christmas present you've received? Oh, gosh, I can't do that. Um, it might be socks because I've got so many socks. So even the nicest socks, if I get more socks, I think, oh, what, <laughs> what am I going to do with these socks? But if you're listening and if you bought me socks recently for my birthday, thank you. They are lovely. <laughs> Very political answer indeed. Um, in your opinion, what's the best Christmas album of all time? Wow, um, that's really hard. I, I, um, in that it's really quite easy because the Chicago staff band did an album of Christmas stuff, which I love and you can't get hold of now. I've forgotten the name of it, but it has the hymn tune, Margaret, Oh, Come to My Heart, Lord Jesus on it. The Suppliant's Heart, that album. Ah, re-released, please. And I'll buy a copy, at least one. Magnificent album. Great stuff. And uh, by the way, that's not my Salvation Army answer. That's my answer across the board. Excellent. Indeed, I'll have to go and give that a listen if I can find a copy as well. Now, we all know that Christmas jumpers are becoming very popular. The tackier, the better. So talk me through your dream design of Christmas jumper. I, I actually haven't got a Christmas jumper. And um, I, I don't particularly know why that is. Uh, what would it be? It would definitely have to have some reindeer on, but not Rudolph's nose. Um, it would need some kind of angelic trumpeter, because that's what I am, obviously. Um, and I think it would have a traditional sa Santa Claus in green, as he used to be before Coca-Cola came along. Other soft drinks are available. <laughs> Excellent stuff. And uh, finally, if Santa got stuck up the chimney, what do you yeah. think he'd begin to shout? I think he would sneeze because that's, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, I imagine he would shout help. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether he would shout it downwards or upwards. It's hard to know because some Christmas cards depict him with his legs in the air as if he's gone through the chimney head first. I think that's less likely. I imagine he would go feet first. Mm. Does that answer the question? I've sure. never thought about the way to approach going down the chimney before, but now I'm really confident. Yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine he would go feet first um, and he would, yeah. Well, listeners can let us know on our fully screen. Yeah, that's a definite. Send a postcard 
Let us know which way would you go down a chimney if you were a Santa Claus impersonation act. Yeah. And what's the worst disease to get at Christmas? Disease. Um, Well, it would have to be tinselitis. (laughs) Very good. Uh, While we're on Christmas, do you do you get called frosty? I used to at school. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody, including teachers. Yeah. Does that make Christmas a good time for you or a less good time for you? I don't mind. I've been called far worse. <laughs> and how many times could you play Frosty the Snowman in one breath? Well, at the moment, probably not even once. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of our quickfire questions and the end of our interview today. So uh, thank you ever so much for giving up your time to join us. Hopefully it hasn't been too much of a terrifying experience. <laughs> no, it's been it's been really nice. Um, I just feel like I'm chatting to you, Matthew. And uh, and I'm aware that other people will listen, and I hope that uh, it makes some sense. <laughs> Even if it doesn't help, I hope it at least um, is comprehensible. And on a more serious note, thank you ever so much for your time and those answers that you've given, certainly given us all something to think about and ponder about whilst we're listening, and hopefully for the rest of our day. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Anthony, for your words. For those that enjoyed hearing Anthony and would like to follow his journey, you can also follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at AntTrumpet, all one word. Anthony didn't feel that there was time to share the whole story in his interview, but on his top pinned tweet he shares a story from 2011 of a harrowing time he had in surgery where he clinically died several times. But of course, being Anthony, all throughout his faith remained strong and at the forefront of his mind. We look forward to putting Anthony's band knowledge to the test in Band Mastermind later on in this episode. It now gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podcast Stephen Buller. Steve is a world-renowned composer, arranger and salvationist. Steve currently resides in Washington DC and was for 30 years the staff arranger for the President's own United States Marines Band. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Stephen Buller to the podcast today, especially for our Christmas special this year. And we're going to be looking at one of his fine pieces, The Proclamation of Christmas. So first of all, Steve, how are you keeping? I'm well, thanks. Uh, It seems to have gotten busier back-to-back writing um, commissions on this side and um, different performances coming up. Lots of excitement, but uh, it doesn't seem to slow down right now. Uh, Myself, my wife, children where everyone's healthy and um, working from home as we normally do anyway. One of the boys is in school in person, the other one uh, uh, is in college and that's all virtual. So uh, the answer is doing well here, thank you. Brilliant, that's excellent to hear. So, as I said, we're gonna be delving into your piece a little bit today. And before we go and look through the score like we normally do in our analyses, I've got a few contextual questions to ask you. So first of all, what was the inspiration behind writing the proclamation of Christmas. Yeah, we're going back to 1990 or even before that, perhaps. Uh, It was published in 1990. So I'm trying to recall, uh, specifically, it was an ISB event. Carols at Christmas, was it Cadogan Hall or something like that, Westminster, perhaps. I don't get many requests to write music for the ISB, but on this occasion, someone contacted me and uh, said very specifically, we're looking for like an opener 
for the program, for the band to come out and, and play something with lots of flash. But uh, that was the uh, specific um, uh, genesis of, of the work. Fantastic. And it's uh, great. We're actually playing it as well this year in preparation for our, our hall concert in a few weeks as well. It's great. Comes out fresh. Wonderful. Still. So the overture features five different carols. Hark the Herald, Ding Dong Merrily on High, The First Noel, While Shepherds Watched, and Angels from the Realms of Glory set to the tune Regent Square. What were the reasons for using these five particular carols? I tried to find a theme, Matthew. It was, um, you know, I have favorites. We all have favorite carols, but I had to, first of all, make it fit into the style of uh, an overture. I'll, I'm going to go as far as saying a Broadway style overture. And so there had to be a lot of energy. There had to be contrast to the energy, some of the slower tunes like uh, the first Noel, perhaps. But um, overarching that, I was trying to uh, think about sort of a, a theme idea of, of angels and, and shepherds and, and, and a grand announcement. So if you take another look at that uh, list, you'll see um, it's kind of portraying the announcement when the angels, you know, appeared to the shepherds and, and, uh, and there was a star and uh, that, that the wise men followed, all of that that we associate with the announcement of, of, of Christmas, of, of the birth of the child. And um, that was kind of the, the bigger picture, if, if that's what you're asking me. I, I tried to pick tunes that wove that together. Excellent. Perfect tunes to announce something coming, as exactly. is an overture. Uh, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the musical considerations you had to make to fit this overture genre? Yeah. Well, you know, my work with the Marine Band, I was always kind of putting together medleys of, of music, either for our vocalists or for the band to play uh, patriotic medleys. So I, I'm, I'm very aware of uh, how long it takes for, to get through a tune, maybe transitioned into a key change or, or whatever. The challenge was not to make the piece too long uh, of, as an overture. So I, um, I, I had to musically kind of consider tying this all together. Five tunes, that could get a little unwieldy unless, you know, you're really moving through them pretty quickly, uh, yet honoring the tune, respecting the tune, making sure you're not just taking a, a snippet, but, but putting the whole uh, tune in there, yet keeping it all a brilliant setting. So transitions had to be short, uh, back to the musical question. Uh, introduction kind of had to lay the, uh, the foundation for what was coming, perhaps. But um, yeah, it, it, the, the main musical thing was getting it all in there and, and keeping it to about six minutes or seven minutes or so. So that was one of the goals early on. Fantastic. And uh, now you alluded to it slightly earlier, but I'd just like to dig into this question a little bit more, and I'm sure we'll spot it when we look through the score. But are there in any intentional nods to other composers or references to other pieces in this music? Uh, that's an that's an interesting question because uh, I, I guess I'm known for doing that occasionally. I'll nod to my friends. I'll say hello to Bill Himes every once in a while with a little quote or or Peter Graham, uh, just just uh, as 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 a wave. Um, I say it's an interesting question because in this piece, if there are some, you're going to have to point them out to me because I don't remember um, doing any of uh, any references to other composers. Uh, living or or otherwise <laughs> so um yeah but i don't recall the answer is no uh, to my recollection fair enough and uh, my final of these sort of contextual questions before we go into the school 
is there a particular recording or performance of this piece that is particularly meaningful to you? Yes, of course, the uh, the original recording that I have of it, the first recording I received was the uh, ISB 2006 recording. It's called Christmas Tidings, the CD uh, at that time. And uh, I, th I thought the band really captured it, all the excitement of it, uh, both technically and musically. It's all there. It's, it's, uh, and it opens, it's the track one of, of that Christmas Tidings CD. So uh, that, that's my go-to. I know there's been a, a few others, bands around the world send me their CDs. And, um, but the question was, uh, if, I, if I have a favorite, I still go back to the, uh, the ISB recording, well done. Excellent. And I should just mention to listeners that that's the recording we're gonna be using for our little snippets in our episode today. So let's take a look at the score and delve a little bit deeper into these sections. As usual, listeners at home can find the score and download it on the Salvation Army Music Index if they're interested to follow along with us. exciting opening here that uh, captures the excitement and the mood of Christmas. Could you talk us through a few things that we should be looking out or listening out for in this introduction? Well, uh, percussion uh, plays a, a good part. There's a big timpani roll, uh, which is typical of an overture and uh, the snare drum coming through in the, in the opening. But um, yeah, for, for bands, they uh, many bands have a kind of a hard time getting these. I'm going to, I'm going to use American words here, but the uh, 16th notes in the beginning seem to be a challenge, uh, just finding the right pitch. And when I rehearse it, I'll like kind of give them the first note and then the second note and have them go back and forth slowly until we have this, you know, this sort of, um, well, it's a very woodwind kind of passage, but a little, 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 little just to sort of set the stage and get the excitement going. Uh, after it's in the middle of the band, the horns, baritones, then if, as you can see about four or five bars later, it goes into the cornets and back and forth. So we have this very high activity kind of figure uh, in the opening. And uh, of course the trombones uh, come in in the third bar and start really setting a, a, up some of the theme of the fanfare uh, in this music. But it's, it's kind of like these tremolos that, that uh, challenge bands a bit shouldn't but uh it's just a matter of finding pitch uh, so that's all in the opening fantastic when we get to letter a we have uh, the first of our carols making an appearance uh hark the herald angel sings could you talk us through this section the way you've treated the melody here yes well of course the uh th this great song is not normally uh in a in a fast-paced overture style setting um, but what I do is set up that sort of syncopated uh, figure about four bars before the tunes, tune comes in. And by the way, that's a short introduction. You know, that's just four bars. It's nothing really more than that. After we've got out of the opening, it's just four bars to sort of set what's coming um, for the accompaniment to the tune. And you can see the horns and flugel and all start that in those four bars but when the melody comes in in the uh, solo cornets then it's just trombones continuing that melody in the background 
I, I consider it a light um, accompaniment. You can see the uh, the tubas are just kind of touching here with a like a pizzicato uh, bass line um, every couple of beats or so. The main propelling uh, component is uh, the trombones, uh, of course. But you know, I mentioned uh, respecting the tune. You, you don't kind of. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people could make a march out of Hark the Herald Angels Sing and kind of turn it around that way. But I like to put a big phrase over it and have it played legato. And that's just what's uh, indicated for the solo cornets here. And uh, so there's your there's your setting of Hark the Herald. Fantastic. And uh, when we get to letter B, we've got throughout the band these Sforzando pianos. To me, they sound a little bit like bells of Christmas ringing out. Is that an intentional sound world yes, that you're trying to get out there yeah very much uh, uh not to be obvious about it but that's a, that's exactly what we're trying to get a carol on uh from the trombones and cornets there as the uh euphonium and, and uh, horn sections keep the tune going forward um of interest the uh, the chimes i think you call them chimes at letter b um actually play the first three notes of the tune and then same thing four bars later so that uh, three bars or so later uh so it gives more and more of that bell carillon sound to what's going on in the music fantastic and that takes us through to section d a change of style here as we introduce ding dong merrily on high can you talk us through the, the style change and the key change and perhaps the reasons why this movement and this section works so well. Sure. Matthew, it's about contrast in a uh, piece like this. You, you, you can't just uh, keep going uh, full on. Uh, you have to kind of balance things a bit uh, as a writer, this writer anyway. Um, two bars before D, it's like I've, I finally put the brakes on and the whole thing does slow down multi uh before the tune comes in. And so it's that this transition is just two bars, which gets us through this, the change of tempo and also the key change. Um, so I, I put a fermata on that so that at, at the end of it, and, and a complete scissora, a break, so that the music has a, has a chance to breathe before we go into Ding Dong, Merrily on High. This is more of a, a, a traditional older um, uh, English tune uh, to my recollection, and um, I like the style change. It has enough motion in it to keep momentum of the of the music mo moving forward, and it also it kind of writes itself. I have to remember uh, that when I was working on this, the beautiful lines that are uh, intrinsic to the way we hear this tune every time are um, it just kind of writes itself. So that was. Um, that was a pleasure working with that tune. In fact, I kept going with it. I take it into a key change, uh, not to move ahead of you here, but we're still on the same tune at letter E. I go into the key of G concert, which gets, uh, you know, into sharps for uh, the, uh, the, rest, the rest of the, of the band. And um, I actually, because it's a short tune, what is it, maybe um, eight bars or so, I said, uh, okay, there's time, this is, this is, I'd like to explore the tune a little bit more. So we have a flugel solo and a couple of other little instrumental uh, um, areas where I thin down the, uh, the orchestration. So in that second verse, then the band comes in and sort of finishes it in a, in a bigger way uh, as well. But I was able to get two verses through on that one uh, through there. 
Excellent. And from that sort of quite light pastiche Baroque setting, perhaps, of yep. um, that tune, we move into a waltz-like version of the first Noel. Can you talk us through this next section, please? Yeah, again, it's it's a little bit of, um, with a, a fast-paced overture, um, even in Broadway shows that I've been to, uh, you're, you're kind of, they're introducing you to the songs that are in the show. Um, and they don't take a lot of time. Again, again, I'm talking about transitions. They don't take a lot of time to get you there. So I had to come out of uh, Ding Dong Merrily on High, slow it down once again, um, and uh, the inevitable key change, uh, which does come in at, at letter F. You said waltz-like. Um, the tune originally is in three. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't actually consider it an oom-pa-pa kind of a waltz. Uh, more of a ballad where I, I kind of go into a little bit of jazz harmony, uh, which is where I like to live uh, when I'm able to, and um, just insert some of that flavor into the setting of the first Noel. Doesn't really go very far out, but I love the way some of the bass lines work with the melody, and I was able to get some of that sort of uh, harmonization into it. Um, that's the first part of the tune. Uh, when it gets to the chorus, I go into another, uh, we were talking about bells. I go into another bit of a carillon at letter G uh, for the, for the uh, last bit of the first Noel um, where we're featuring just the, um, uh, just the cornet section as I'm looking at it. And then I answer four bars of that sort of cornet carillon with then another return to the lush sound of, of the uh, darker instruments, the horns, baritones, euphonium with a, a moving quaver line through there. And then um, lastly, um, to finish the tune, we do our bell effects again. I'm sure you see those four bars before H uh, where we just slow the, 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 the tune down so it spreads across a couple of measures. And um, again, the bell effect through each of those, um, uh, uh, each note of, of the end of the tune. And then the flugel puts a little jazzy thing on top at the end and another hold with a, um, another break before the next tune is introduced. So the music breathes once again. Fantastic. And just to go back to something that I've noticed in the score, quite unusual perhaps for brass band scores, the trombones are marked non-vibrato. What's the reasoning behind that um, technique there? Oh, pretty specifically, so they don't use vibrato. Uh, yeah, it's, it's more about um, when to use vibrato and when not to. And if um, in especially in uh, jazz harmonization, there's no room for, for any kind of a wobble inside the voicing. Um, if you're gonna put something perhaps on top, the lead voice, when I'm working with a band um, in this kind of a setting, I would say the, the melody, certainly, but not from within you know, tight harmony. And that's why I very specifically said, don't use vibrato here. I don't write that so much anymore because bands now don't do that as much. Orchestral players, military players know not to put vibrato on in, you know, it's sort of style dependent. So back then, you know, back 1990, um, I kind of felt like I still, for a British brass band, I felt like I had to be a little more, uh, less subtle about the vibrato. 
long way to say it, but there you go. Thanks for pointing that out. No, fascinating answer. That's great. So when we get to letter H here, we have perhaps one of the sort of most extended uh, passages and transition into the music, taking us through to the, the Giro, which uh, to me gives off little sort of Troika vibes here with the sleigh bells uh, chiming throughout to set us up for while shepherds watched their flock. <laughs> Well, good observation. Uh, some of this, you know, when I write, it's more instinctual than I'm, I'm not going to a Prokofiev score and saying, oh, Troika right through here would be. Uh, but unconsciously, I think I was channeling that. It's, it's good that you brought it up. An interesting observation I had uh, when the first when this first came out, I was told that that song was not well known in the UK. It's very well known here in America. And it seemed, again, my idea about the shepherds and that whole scene of announcing um, uh, the birth that uh, this tune fit in very, very well there. So um, it also gives me a chance, if I can anticipate your next question, to move the melody down to another part of the band at letter J. And um, in fact, it's just the tubas playing the melody in octaves there. Uh, with now tr the trombone section um, uh, in cut mutes, just to give it another color and to give the, tr the tubas the, the front, uh, the front of the the sound picture, as it were, through there. So that takes us through into another transition into section K, where we have our fifth and final carol, uh, "Angels from the Realms of Glory," set to the tune "Regent Square." Can you talk us through again this transition here and? Uh, the treatment of this final carol. Yeah, I love this tune. I, I felt I, I saved it for the end because it has such a majesty about it, uh, I think. Um, of course, I gave it to the trombones and uh, all playing unison. It was in a good range, sits, uh, sits well for them. Uh, about the fourth, uh, fourth bar of um, K, the cornets, the solo cornets come in, and that's um, in in terms of uh, Broadway writing and that style. That's a that's a violin line right there as they are leading in with all the consecutive sixteenth uh, notes into the uh, the next section, which is a key change, handing it over to the uh, euphonium. But the tune keeps going through there as um, in the quarter notes, and it. Uh, it gets us up to uh, letter L, where I sort of break the tune down into a halftime feel instead of come and worship. It's it's. So each each beat kind of stretches out the tune a little bit, yet the, the uh, snare drum and the, the percussion are still uh, cranking away there with the uh, with the rhythm that propels the music uh, forward. At letter L also, while they're doing that, I have a, another string line kind of going over the top, uh, sustaining uh, for interest up above the melody, which is still in the horns. Um, another one of those sort of uh, orchestral moves uh, before uh, M is in the euphonium. Again, a big long line, something that would appear in a violin part. And that is all part of kind of what I was emulating in the style of the music. Gets a little faster as it leads into letter M. Well, 
what what are your thoughts about letter M, Matthew? Oh, delightful as ever, and I think we have a little uh, return to this opening motif that we've seen. I think it is fairly obvious, but I think it's possibly worth sort of talking. Where does the derivative of this little uh, three four two four melody come from? Yeah, it it does appear earlier uh, as well, but. It was just, I think it was kind of a, a motif that I came up with to sort of tie things together. And um, it, it keeps you on that when you do a, a three, three, four, two, four, uh, back and forth like this, it kind of keeps you a little, I don't want to say unbalanced, but on the edge of your chair of like, what's coming. It's just kind of unsettling, perhaps in a, in a simplistic way, I, I suppose. But that's what we're trying to establish there. And if the, the quarter notes at 144, so the tempo is really moving along here uh, with excitement. And um, it just gave me a chance to do a little bit more with that uh, mixed meter uh, section as, uh, as you kind of come up to the final statement uh, before letter N, three bars before. And so certainly an exciting finish here. The music drops, and again, I'm sure you might say to give it a little bit of space before we take us through to this bold ending. Can you talk us through our final section, letter N, the presto? Yes, absolutely. Um, that continues with the mixed meter for a little bit, but we have immediately, we drop down, as you say, and uh, everything is, uh, you know, I, I feel like, especially with uh, scoring for brass band, you need the uh, dynamic contrast. It is so critical to making it uh, a variety to the sound, the color uh, of the instruments, uh, as opposed to just everything being loud all the way through. And uh, so I'm, I've, I've work with every piece I write, I work on ways to find that dynamic range uh, and make it, um, build it into the orchestration rather than just writing piano or fortissimo but building it into the, uh, the weight of the instruments. So we have some of that at letter N here, Mark Presto. We go right down to the tubas that are setting up what is basically a, uh, a sequence uh, that continues every, every two bars or so. You can see it starts in the tubas, then in the, uh, the trombones, second baritone, goes on up into the horns, then up into the cornets. That's really that whole page of score right there. It just keeps building repeating uh, like an ostinato of, of what's going uh, through the, that rhythm. Uh, I'm using chordal harmony here. I'm building up in, in fourths, you know, not so much in thirds, but uh, that kind of, if you follow that along, you can see it right, right through each, every two bars, it goes up a fourth, up a fourth or so. And then we get into the, um, the final, uh, what would you call this? I guess a, a fanfare. It's trombones and cornets with flourishes in the uh, euphonium and tuba down below. But it's again, it's this sort of uh, final fanfare before we put the rallentando on at, at the end. Everything draws out. And then um, <clears throat> another big line up into the, the high woodwinds and high violins, perhaps. It's in here, it's it's the cornets in the entire cornet section leading up to their uh, ultimate sustained note. The whole band um, answers them with the two quavers. And then of course we have a soprano note on top for the last up on his uh, high C or her high C um, with the uh, timpani helping join in. And it really gives that final full stop, you know, on the, uh, on the setting. Thank you. 
an absolutely scintillating finish and I must say masterfully written all the way through the piece. Thank you. Now, thank you ever so much, Steve, for joining us. It's been a real privilege to talk to you and I really hope that we'll be able to speak to you again in the future a little bit more about your life as well as the music. Sure. Well, thank you, Matthew. Thanks for the opportunity. This is a great series uh, you and Simon are putting together and I really uh, have enjoyed looking at a few of them and uh seems like a, a great idea that was waiting to happen you've organized that so well done as well thank you very much thanks steve once again expertly composed and navigated through the school just now i don't know about you but i'm almost starting to feel a little tingle of festivity approaching well anyway that's past. so it's now time for band mastermind at home before I reveal this episode's conundrum, I'd like to congratulate last episode's winners. First to let us know the correct answer and take home the extra bonus brownie points was Darren Waterworth, correctly identifying the piece as Paul Sharman's Flow Gently Sweet Afton, taken from the ISB CD Fire in the Blood. Well done, Darren. Congratulations also to our three runners-up, whose answers all came in within a few hours of each other. Those people were Fred and Bessie, Gareth Evans and Edward Milchrist. For this episode's Band Mastermind at Home, I've taken a snippet from the score notes of a Christmas work. If you know which work I'm describing, then drop us a message on our social media platforms. First to let us know the correct answer, we'll get a mention in our next episode. The paraphrased notes read as follows. Salvationist musicians are already aware of the creative talent of this composer, and this further contribution to the Christmas repertoire will maintain throughout the interest of both performer and listener. Since the quality of the music will demand a fair amount of rehearsal time, conductors will no doubt wish to extend the Christmas music season to its furthest limits. Incidentally, Percussionists are provided with an interesting part, which will, we trust, in some ways compensate for their necessary change of role during the outdoor caroling programme. The work includes Come Children, Come Quickly, God Rest You, Merry Gentlemen, Good Christian Men Rejoice, and Joy to the World. If you think you know which piece I'm describing there, let us know. It's now time to welcome Anthony Thompson back to the podcast to put his band knowledge to the test in Band Mastermind. So, Anthony, just to remind you of the rules, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as you can. If you don't know the answer feel free to say pass and we'll move on to the next question. But I don't do that for every question because I've only got about 13 prepared. <laughs> okay. So, Anthony Thompson, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I am ready. Then your time begins now. What year did Derek Kane join the International Staff Band? Pass. Okay, what's the name of the cornet solo that Norman Bearcroft wrote for Clarence Adu for the Bandmasters Councils in 1988? Oh, pass. Okay, what was William Himes' first published piece? 
first. Okay. Which bandmaster revived the Canadian staff band in 1969? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, pass. That's okay. Brass or Praise is the National Salvation Army band of which European country? Brass or Praise? Brass mm. of Praise. Pass. Okay. Who was Principal Cornet for the ISB's recording of Isaiah 40 on the manuscript CD? I could uh, guess uh, Roland Cobb. Uh, not correct, I'm afraid. What was the Triumph series originally called? I don't know. Pass. Okay. 50-50 uh, question for you now. Which of these pieces came first? Bramwell Coles, The Divine Pursuit, or Arthur Gunnage's solo, Jubilate? I'm going to go for The Divine Pursuit. Correct. Dudley Bright's work, Confrontations, is based around which popular hymn by Lieutenant Colonel Stanley Dittman? Yield not to temptation. Uh, not quite, but a good guess. I'm not even sure that's Stanley Dittmer. Okay. And uh, which city is the National Capital Band situated in? The National Capital Band? I don't know. Pass. Okay. We'll pass on that, and that brings us to the end of Bandmaster Mind as we are out of time. So Thank you. that gives you a grand total of one. Brilliant. So. I'll just whiz through the answers of the ones he didn't quite get for those listening at home. Uh, but Derek Kane joined the ISB in 1976. The name of the Cornet solo that Norma Bearcroft wrote for Clarence Adu at the Bandmasters Councils in 1988 was called On the Golden Shore. William Himes' first Salvationist published piece was The Witness. And it was Norman Bearcroft that revived the Canadian Staff Band in 1969. Brass of Praise is the National Salvation Army Band of Switzerland. And it was actually Gary Fountain who was principal cornet for the ISB's recording of Isaiah 40 on the manuscripts CD. The Triumph series was originally called the second series. And the last couple of questions, Stanley Bright's work Confrontations is based around the tune by Stanley Dittmer, I'm in his hands. And finally, the National Capital Band is situated in Washington, DC. So maybe those listening might have got a few of those or might have drawn a blank on all of them. Who knows? Unfortunately, this does bring us to the end of our festive fully scored and indeed to the end of season two of the podcast. As the angel Gabriel said to Mary, do not be afraid for season three of fully scored will be packed with more exciting analyses and fascinating guests. Obviously, the angel Gabriel didn't say that whole sentence, of course, but you get what I mean. If you want to see and hear more bonus footage from these episodes and previous episodes, extra content and information about new episodes coming soon, then make sure to follow our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search Fully Scored and you'll be sure to find us. As always, we'd love to hear from our listeners. So if you do have any comments or things that you'd like to hear, then let us know. Just before I bid thou farewell, a few thanks. Thank you, of course, to Anthony and Stephen for giving up your time to speak with me, especially during this exceptionally hectic time of year. Thank you for your words, insight, knowledge and encouragement. Thank you to the elusive band nerds for your suggestions of band mastermind trivia. And thank you, as always, to Simon Gash, who's been working hard like a little elf in his grotto to deliver this episode in time for Christmas. Thanks, Simon. 
and thank you, our listeners. I hope that you have a safe and happy Christmas. Look forward to seeing you in the new year. Goodbye and God bless. Thank you.